As I've said, uh, I'm planning on doing a series on the Satipatthana Sutta, the Four Foundations of Mindfulness. And in that series, I should be tonight talking about the second foundation, Vedana, or feeling tone. But when I thought about it, it didn't feel right. Now this, that came out of a conversation at lunch where I was saying, you know, I left so much out of that talk on the body, I really think I should do more about that. It doesn't feel like I should move on. And someone very cleverly made that joke. It's kind of as good as it gets for Buddhist jokes. So tonight is actually a continuation of the first foundation of mindfulness a talk that I gave last week, because as I said, I really realized that it takes two, at least two talks. You could certainly do much, much more on this foundation, because there's so much in it, these many different practices that the Buddha talked about. So I ended up rushing through the last few, which are really very valuable for us, really important. So I'm going to go back to some that I touched on and talk more about the last one that I didn't really uh, do at all, uh, the, the death contemplations. And also to say some about, just in general, as practitioners, what's a wise relationship to the body? So I want to start right there. Whatever practice we're doing, how do we relate to this miracle, this mystery, this manifestation of the body? This body, that body, all of these bodies because I think I said last week, they are kind of miracles. And if you go back to the very beginning, as mammals, as human beings, we all started off with this union, right, of an egg and a sperm, all of us. And from that, and then a process of individuation and separation, these cells multiplying and dividing and somehow knowing Again, I have no idea how they do this. I don't know if anyone knows, you know, to become a a liver cell or a brain cell or a bone cell or a blood cell. It's just an amazing process, this process of, of growth that happens until there's a fully formed baby that then enters the next stage of separation, being born, separated from the mother, you know, in whom it has been so... Uh, held for those nine months. And what's the first thing this baby has to do? Breathe. Second thing I think is scream, but the first thing, breathe. Um, The breath of life, taking in that, going from being a a creature of of liquid in the womb, in all of this um, moisture, to breathing air. And so there's that transition. But the baby, even after it's born, it has that clear separation from the mother. It doesn't know it's separate, right? It takes quite a while of figuring that out. You know, you're like, oh, oh, that's me. That hurts when I bite or if something touches me. You know, it hurts and the baby responds with these different emotions. But, you, you, you know, you see a baby discovering hands and feet and and the other parts of its body. It, it doesn't really know uh, what it is, but we learn that. And then we learn to use the body to get what we want in the world. We, we can become an agent in the world, so we can pick things up 
And what babies love to do is pick them up and then drop them, right? Or push them off or throw them. And to see that it can get other beings to perhaps do what it wants some of the time. So we learn that. We learn we can become an agent in the world, that there's a world out there that we can relate and respond to. But that's the beginning of the solidification of the sense of separateness. And with that creation of the sense of self and other, we lose the sense of intimacy and connection that we were born with and had for so long. And that for many of us is the beginning of a sense of loneliness as we lose that sense of connection, as we become more identified with this body as a a separate manifestation, this sense of self and other, with that comes self-consciousness. And culturally learnt often sense of shame about this body, you know, going back to the archetypes of Adam and Eve, that story of Genesis where they were, you know, expelled from paradise, where they were innocent into, you know, this loss of paradise and they had to cover up their nakedness because they were ashamed. You know, this archetypal imagery is is in our culture in the way many of us were brought up and so we start to learn these attitudes about bodies about our bodies about other people's bodies and these are um, very culturally conditioned or conditioned from family from our peer groups from education some of us get into training the body into great feats of athleticism. Others ignore the body. We can value the body or abuse the body, deny the body. We certainly, most of us, end up judging and comparing bodies. Whatever way we go, for many people, there's an obsession with the body, with how it looks and manifests in the world. Even though, I think I said last week, so much of it we have nothing to do with, no control over how tall we are, what our hair is like, color of our eyes. Of course, a lot of these things these days you can change to some extent, but not the basics. Yet we take it so personally. But the interesting thing is that our idea of the body or or, um, attitude to the body and sense of the body is usually not accurate. It's all through these conditioned perceptions and they're often very distorted. So, so many of us have an image of our body, say, and there's a version there. We don't like it. It's not good enough, not okay for whatever reason. And you only have to go to buy clothes in a in a department store or whatever to to see that you know the, the all of the angles of the mirrors they have there and the bright lights and bathing suit season is kind of not a happy time for a lot of people. I've got around that. I buy through catalogs or Costco. You just don't don't try it on. Just make you know make do. But in this, where often comparing ourselves in these ideas as we look at what we see perhaps in the mirror to some ideal of some younger thinner better whatever your idea is of yourself or what you should be you know if you were whatever um, and but the thing is these ideals that we have taken in through culture 
are actually fiction a lot of the time. It's interesting now that I've, I've read this, that virtually every image of a human being you see in a magazine is photoshopped in some way, especially the ones about celebrities or certainly about fashion. I mean, to ridiculous extents, right, where people lose arms or they're, you know, they're, they're so skinny they look like an alien or they'll put, you know, a celebrity's head and give them a different body because their body isn't good enough. So what we're comparing to are these literally made-up, distorted beings. No one actually looks like that. You know, some of these celebrities say, I don't look like that. Don't do that to me. It's such a distortion. And so it's no wonder that we can get messed up around this body image because it, it's, it's so um, influenced by these imaginations, these imaginary ideals. But the image we have of our body often doesn't match what it actually really looks like. I read an article a while ago um, on body image by this doctor, Dr. Christian Jensen, and he said that body image is a term that has come to mean our mind's eye image of our physical appearance in contrast with the outer image as rated by an unbiased observer. I don't know if there is such a thing, but anyway. Most would think that these two would correlate substantially, but studies have shown the overlap to be an astonishingly low 5%. It's this body image that is closely related to psychological factors and clinical conditions like eating disorders, depression, and low self-esteem. But he's saying we have very little realistic sense of what we look like because it's so distorted through all of this cultural conditioning that we've been influenced by. So it can be a cause of a lot of suffering um, and painful body distortions. The, The anorexia where people feel that they're never thin enough even as they're getting incredibly thin. And I've heard that even these days there's bigorexia, which often affects young men where they're not big and and muscular enough. Now there's a whole push and and, uh, conditioning about being muscular. And so for whatever reason, because the body can become so painful, we become disembodied, right? Disconnected. And the body is this separate thing. Here's for some people... The, the body is just this vehicle to carry our head around. Or that famous line from James Joyce where he said, Mr. Duffy lived a certain distance from his body. A lot of people relate to the body in that way, either through ignoring it or because it's so painful, they, they deny it, they can't land in it. For us as practitioners, this doesn't work. Not helpful. I read this by Reginald Ray, the Tibetan teacher, And he talks specifically about this. He says, Buddhist meditation, as practiced in the West, frequently suffers from a profound disembodiment. Often we meditate from the neck up as floating heads completely cut off from the life of our bodies and our physical existence in the world. We meditate in this way because we believe, often without realizing it, that the ideal meditative state should somehow be devoid of the pain, complexity, 
ambiguity and physicality, in other words, the full embodiment of our natural human condition. You may object that the Buddha taught a Dharma whose goal was to show the way out of suffering. Quite true. But often in our Western practice of Buddhism, we mistake the goal for the path, seeing the Buddha's statement of the goal as a description of how we should go about meditating. Many of us, when we sit down to practice, do so with a longing for quiet and peace. No problem. But then our meditation becomes an exercise in trying to attain such a state. It's here our problems begin. If we are experienced and skilled enough, perhaps we have figured out how to meditate so as to remove ourselves from the pain, uncertainty, and groundlessness of our lives and enter into a much more satisfying, unambiguous state of mind that we identify as the meditative state. What could possibly go wrong with that? The problem is that in this approach, we are expressing and strengthening the profound dualism that has affected Western culture since at least the early Christian world of St. Paul. It goes on to say, the view of meditation as disembodiment involves not only our idea that we meditate to remove ourselves from the dirt and detritus of our habitual mental states, More subtly, it is our mental image of an ideal disembodied state that we, perhaps unconsciously, hold up before ourselves every time we sit down to practice. This may be based on a memory of a state experienced in our practice or with a respected teacher or something we have read or heard. No matter what specific practice we may be using, this mental image whether conscious or unconscious, is guiding and directing our meditation. It will limit how we are able to engage and how much we are able to experience, and it will restrict what we are able to see. So really a call to land in the full embodiment, as the Buddha invited us to do, even in its messiness, imperfection, and pain, because otherwise we are disconnected, we are disembodied. And so our practice here in the first foundation of mindfulness is to connect with the body as it actually is, right now, the body as a body, not memory or projection or ideals, in its messiness and imperfection, with the pain and the, 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 the contractions that might come, and also the beauty and the joy and the bliss that can also be there. So, to, to, you know, our practice is to see everything as clearly as possible. This is what vipassana means, to see clearly. It includes the body and our ability, capacity to see this body as it is. As I said last week, this body is our vehicle for awakening, even as meditation is the work of the mind and what we're training here is the mind. We experience so much through the body. Our thoughts, our moods, our emotions are all, all can be known through the body. The body can be a great frame or reference point as these experiences move through us 
to actually ground them and connect them in present moment awareness. And so we create this relationship with the body, both of respect and appreciation, but also curiosity and wonder and care and and, um, honoring and challenge the assumptions we might see we have about it, about ideal Uh, ideals about the body, projections about the body, a sense of separation, the body is who I am, as me, as mine, any sense of inadequacy, wrongness about the body. The body is this precious field for our Dharma practice and how we relate to it can be a source of enormous suffering or the doorway to freedom through the practices that the Buddha taught. And so this first foundation of mindfulness is such a wise place to start the practice before the Buddha moves on in, that, in the sequence of the foundations to more and more subtle objects. Again, feeling tone, Vedana, the mind and states of mind, and then Dharma principles. Before we can do that, we need to be able to ground our experience in the body, in this really intimate knowing of the body, this sensing, present moment sensing of the body. One of the ways the Buddha advised or offered was the 32 parts of the body practice, and I spoke about that last week. Um, And it's a whole intense practice in and of itself, so again, not saying it's something we should or need to do here, but it, 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 it points to a way of relating to the body that can be really skillful. And I think I mentioned that traditionally it's called asuba practice, and that was translated as foulness or disgusting or even the loathsomeness of the body, but it literally means not beautiful. And if you truly explore the body in this way, as I said, in my practice, I came to see the body is really a miracle, quite miraculous. And that practice was actually a source of deep equanimity, rather than this negativity that we can hear about in this tradition. And especially if you read uh, some of the commentarial works, you can hear, read that attitude. But I don't think it's, it's grounded in, in the practices themselves or what the Buddha said. Tanasaro Bhikkhu, who's one of the great uh, scholars and translators of the Buddha's teaching, says, although early Buddhism is widely believed to take a negative attitude toward the body, the texts of the Pali Canon do not support this belief. They approach the body both in its positive role as an object of meditation to develop mindfulness, concentration, and the mental powers based on concentration, and in its negative role as an object for unskillful states of mind. Even in its negative role, the body is not the culprit. The problem is the mind's attachment to the body. Once the body can be used in its positive role to develop mindfulness and concentration, those mental qualities can be used to free the mind of its attachments to the body. Then, as many a modern meditation master has noted, the mind and body can live in peace. So again, it's about developing a wise relationship to the body, a skillful relationship with the body, honoring, respecting, but also being curious about how am I relating to the body? What is this felt 
direct experience of body. So again, just to remind you of what I covered last week in this, um, the opening of the sutta, this discourse on the four foundations of mindfulness, the Buddha Buddha advises us to practice in a way that's ardent or diligent, clearly knowing and mindful. So bringing these qualities to our practice and then begins by going and sitting down or standing or walking, whatever you're doing, and being aware of the body breathing, just as we've been doing here, taking these instructions straight from the sutta. And we do this practice of feeling the body and knowing the breath in the body to fully experience the body, to bring mindfulness to the whole body, and to calm the body, tranquilize the bodily formations. So as a way of settling or steadying the mind and the attention. And then this great line that's repeated throughout the sutta, mindfulness that there is a body is established to the extent necessary for bare knowledge and mindfulness. So again, there's all of these descriptions of penetrating into the body and the parts of the body, but the the instruction the Buddha comes back to again and again is mindfulness to the extent necessary. So that's always helpful to remember. You have a body, body sitting or standing or walking, all of the Dharma will be revealed. And it goes on to talk about mindfulness in all the four postures, led the guided meditation on standing, talked about mindfulness practicing in the lying down posture, so sitting, walking, standing, lying down, and all of the variations of that. So mindfulness in daily activities and the long list that's given of mindfulness while eating and showering and um, dressing and going to the bathroom. Everything can be included in this field of mindfulness. And then the 32 parts of the body, this practice of um, very systematically going through the body. There's a list that one is given in this practice divided into um, different sections, your head, hair, body, hair, nail, skin, teeth. And you just sort of start, you start on the outer level and you go further and further in until the whole of the body is revealed to the mindfulness um, It's not an exhaustive list. There are many more than 32 parts of the body, but it's a pretty good one to start. It's it's got a lot in it. And again, it's not talking about this to say this is a practice you should take up, but it really does um, point to a way to relate to the body, this deconstruction that I spoke about last week, where if we take something as, as solid and whole, it's very hard to, to see clearly, to find a way in. But you start to break it apart a little, see its constituent or conditioned parts, and then we've got a way to relate to it. And that way of relating really points to the fact that it is conditioned, that it is made up of all of these different parts. So we see the three characteristics of it. It's impermanence, it's unsatisfactoriness, that there's nothing solid there at the core. Once you go through the body in this way, you clearly see there's not anything there that you can label as self, 
that's solid, enduring. You know, they say something like every seven years, every cell of the body is turned over, is renewed. So what really is permanent in this arrangement of, of parts? And then there's the four elements meditation. Again, I just skimmed that last week, but I, I wanted to go back to it because, again, it's not something we talk about a lot, even though it's right there in the sutta as one of the practices, one of the ways of practicing with the body that the, the Buddha recommended. And it can be really helpful, again, with this, this um, lens of deconstruction or depersonalizing the experience of the body. So the four great elements of earth, air, fire, and water. This is what the Buddha said, all experience is comprised of, but particularly this felt sense of the body. This is what we can know it as. And so the earth element is all of the aspects or ways we feel the body is being solid, or hard, or firm, or heavy. Um, You know, everything that, that within and without the body that manifests that. And then water, the fluidity or liquidity or cohesion. Uh, it said of this element, it's like if you have a, um, a cup of flour and you pour water onto it, then it becomes a, a dough, right? It all joins together and becomes this moist, stretchy, uh, resilient kind of matter. If, if your skin dries up, it starts to break apart, right? It flakes off and you moisturize it to bring it in, together into cohesion. And then the fire element is all of the different aspects of, of warmth and coolness. We have plenty of opportunities for practicing wet, with that with this weather. This is about now the coolest place to be in the meditation hall. And then the air element, all of the... the um, the energy of movement in the body, of certainly of the literally the breath moving in and out, the literally the the air element or the wind element, but any motion in the body is considered the air element, and so it's this very dispassionate way of looking at the body. You know, you can't really say my earth element or my earth element is better than your earth element or worse than it or bigger or smaller. It's just this universal nature of every body uh, to cut through the tendency we have to have a subjective experience of the body, of my body being this way and not good enough or whatever. So we can just bring it down to these four very simple aspects of experience. So with the standing meditation this morning, the earth element, just feeling the pressure of literally the earth, the feet on the floor, the hardness of that, any sense of the bones in the body holding you up is uh, the earth element manifesting. So it's going below concepts. So even feet standing on floor there are concepts. A foot is a concept, right? It's, you know, what is a foot? It's a, a skin stretched over a bunch of bones and muscle and tendons and everything. Even the floor is a conditioned thing, a constructed thing. So it's just to feel earth element, this very direct um, experience. It's so uh, uh, strong, can be very um, immediate for us. And even an emotion can be 
known through its elemental nature. We drop below the story and we feel the emotion as a rising or passing of heat, certain vibrations in the body, that's the air element, feelings of pressure, contraction, it's the earth element, um, tears coming, that's the, 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 the water element, it's just to go below that. And so you can use these in your sitting practice. I've actually found it really interesting working with them in walking meditation. And again, all of these I'm offering just to explore if it's interesting to you. Certainly not needing to do this, but as I've worked with these, I've taken them up at different times and to have a kind of um, intention around it can be really helpful. So in the walking meditation, you can take each of the elements and for each stretch of your path, so for the first path, 20, 30 feet, you just pay attention to the earth element, to the feeling of the earth, to the hardness, the pressure of the feet, to the movement of the bones. And then you stop, turn around, and the next path, you pay attention to the air element, certainly to the breath, the sense of motion, if your arms are moving, or you can feel your legs moving through space and being moved through the air, through space, any internal sense of air, of gas, spaces in the body, this is the air element. And then the next pass, you pay attention to the fire element, to warmth or coolness. So again, the bodily warmth that's warmer under the clothes, cooler where the skin is more exposed. You just have the radar be open to the way each particular element is manifesting. So it can just draw your attention to other aspects of experience that we mightn't normally notice. But again, with this uh, intention to deconstruct or depersonalize so it's not me walking, but just these elements. The water element, again, and in the sense of liquidity or, smooth, or, or um, uh, cohesiveness, the, the classic way is to notice the smoothness of the joints, the synovial fluid, the fluid that, that lubricates the joints as we move. And you can just touch into that. Sometimes you can feel the blood pulsing. So again can do it quite intentionally like that. Or sometimes just if this is in your framework of things you're interested in, as different experiences are noticed in the walking, can also see what element is, is being represented by that. So again, you can play with that and see if that's helpful. All again, to point to just these elements arising and passing in their conditioned way due to conditions. So the last of the practices in the first foundation of mindfulness is this powerful teaching of the contemplation of death, of the channel ground contemplations. Again, I touched on it briefly last time, um, but it's such a important reflection that I thought worth going back to. And what this whole section is intended to do is to make death real. I said last week that 
in our culture, we tend to hide death away, even sickness and aging. We hide away, you know, old people's homes. Let's move them off the streets and into this, you know, it's taking care of them in a way, but really shuffling them off out of view. And the dying process so often these days happens in hospitals, in ICUs or other places where sometimes the family can't even be present or it's a very controlled artificial environment. Here the practice is, can we turn towards this fact, this truth of death? This is what happens to every living thing. The end of birth is death. Whenever it comes, we don't know when, but it will come. And so the refrain is, this body too is not exempt from that same fate as we develop these contemplations. Glenn said last week that the heavenly messengers of old age sickness and death were what spurred the Buddha on to his quest for awakening. He said, how can people live knowing that this is what happens to everyone? He was horrified. He was terrorized. And as he contemplated them, he went out into his ascetic and then deep practices. He said, and I love this phrase, I lost the vanity of youth the vanity of health, the vanity of life. Because when we have them, we don't perhaps realize that attitude, but we often do have, oh, not my problem, right? Whatever it is, you know, wherever we are in the spectrum of things. But his admonition is no turn and see. Wherever you are on that spectrum, it's going in one direction. And this is the direction It's going in. And he saw that the way out wasn't to run faster and faster or to, you know, escape it by going off to heaven, but actually by landing in his experience, this gesture of, I'm going to sit here and know this as fully and completely as I can. So we turn towards it and know this for ourselves. I spoke last week about going to the body world's exhibit, well, doing the 32 parts of the body with that catalog uh, from the exhibit and then wanting to go to the exhibit where these bodies, I think there's 20 or 30 of them, men, women, children, have been arranged and and, um, opened up so you can see the various systems of the body. When I was in this uh, phase of, of practice, the other opportunity that I had was um, supported by Bob Stahl, who's a, a teacher who has really practiced the 32 parts of the body meditation. His teacher, Tungpulu Saida, made it a central part of his teaching. So Bob learned it from him and now teaches it. I've taught her a whole retreat with him where that's the practice that you do systematically through the retreat. Very powerful to do it just as we're practicing here, but to practice the 32 parts. So Bob has been a great um, uh, supporter of this practice being practiced again, because it wasn't, as I said, when I first wanted to do it, I couldn't find any resources on it. Now Bob has created a great website called 32parts.org. You can look it up and, you know, click and go through the body, and it's got all the lists and the practices and how to do it and resources. So he's really done a great service in reinvigorating 
um, making accessible this powerful practice. But as part, what he so he teaches a retreat. He also teaches, I think, I don't know how many week class. It's a long um, series of classes on these 32 parts of the body practice. And at the end of the class, he made this, he lives down in Santa Cruz, he made a connection with um, a teacher at the local community college that does autopsies for its medical students. And so at the end of the class series, Bob will take his students and he's now for a number of years offered that opportunity to the teachers at Spirit Rock. So a few of us, James went down and Guy and I and a few other people went down to um, take advantage of that offering. And it was another really powerful experience. And it started, you know, first with the trepidation that I had of, you know, seeing dead bodies up close, autopsied, um, not kind of arranged, you know, in the way they were in the exhibit, but right there in front of us. So I had some trepidation about it. But Bob um, really held us all uh, as a held it all as a meditative practice, including, you know, before we went in, we all sat together and um, talked about it as practice and an at, uh, cultivating an attitude of respect and appreciation for these people who had generously offered their bodies to science to this school so they could be used in this way. So we really approached it as we should. Um, as a practice of mindfulness with a lot of respect and care. And then as we went into the place where the bodies were stored, uh, the woman who was um, inviting us in also had this beautiful attitude of respect and appreciation to the people whose bodies we were seeing. It was really quite moving, you know, to feel that even though they were dead bodies, that there was that sense of care towards them, that, that she really respected them and, you know, made that the, the groundwork of how everyone related to these bodies. So there was a sacredness to this experience. But we walked in, you know, it's a very clinical kind of setting, and she goes into the back room, it's all refrigerated, and just pulls out on a on a on a trolley, this body. It was a man and a woman. We did them one by one. And they'd all been already autopsied, but they would always close them up afterwards. But for us, you would just gradually open them up and take out these pieces of the body. It was an intense and amazing experience to know that person was alive, of course, had a life of joys and hopes and loves and fears and loss and beauty. And now it was just a body, just these parts of the body. Take off the skull, hold the brain in your hand. Really have a sense of this miracle that is life. Because all of this isn't to be morbid about this but to really respect this powerful teaching. This body, too, will be like this, is not exempt from this fate. So really a great practice and a reminder to appreciate what we have. And so the sutta invites us into that. It says, 
uh, and you don't, it, you know, it doesn't even say you have to have a body, a, a, a body to contemplate, a dead body. It says, as though one were to see a body going through all of these stages of decomposition, from recently dead to bones crumbled to dust. And each one to just sit with this reflection. This is the nature of this body. This body is of the same nature. It will be like that. It will be, not be exempt from that fate. So again, this intimacy with the truth, the reality for all of us. Not to be gloomy or depressing, but to actually really wake us up to the preciousness of life. So again, not saying that you should do this practice here. It's an intense practice. It needs a lot of uh, support and training. But I always find it helpful to incorporate aspects of it um, into just my mindfulness as I go about. Because we see it, right? It's, it's all around us. Uh, you know, just even in the changing of the seasons, there's an ending, there's a death that's happening, that, that we're participating in. And I spoke about these five subjects for frequent recollection that are chanted in monasteries all over the world every day, because the Buddha said one should frequently recollect them, so pe- people do. And Larry Rosenberg, who's a great teacher, he, he teaches here often, he's pretty much retired now, but taught here for many years, founded Cambridge Insight Meditation Center in Boston, very wise. He wrote a whole book based on these recollections called Living with Dying. And when I was exploring all of these different practices, I found his book really helpful. I really recommend it. So he used those contemplations as the chapters in his book, subject to aging, subject to illness, subject to death. All that is beloved and pleasing to me, from that I will be separated. I am the owner of my karma, heir to my karma, born of my karma. Karma means actions, intentional actions. Related to my karma, abides supported by my karma. Whatever karma I shall do, whether good or evil, of that I shall be the heir. So we're invited to contemplate that on a regular basis. Aging, illness, death, separation, karma. Because as I said, it's only going in one direction, right? We're all growing older, even if you're quite young. Doesn't matter, same direction. But there's so many ways we try to delude ourselves about that fact, right? You know, just not paying attention. Stephen Levine um, who's now dead, used to lead a lot of dying workshops. He was such an inspiring teacher for many of us. And so he was, I heard this story, he was at a workshop on death and dying, and he asked the group, probably a big group like this, how many of you are going to die? No one put their hand up. It's like, I want to hear about it theoretically, but, you know, not me. So, you know, we can have all these attitudes, well, if I eat healthily and I exercise and I take all the right vitamins and supplements, the latest superfood and acai berries and whatever it is that's the latest thing and all the anti-aging creams and lotions and potions and certainly in some circles surgery, we think it won't happen. But it will, right? It's inevitable. I saw, you know, I was exploring all these different things that are out there and there's a I kid you not, a place called the Immortality Institute. 
I have a website, and their subline is Conquering the Blight of Involuntary Death. <laughs> it's like, let's just get rid of it. This is the essential delusion of, of humans for eons, right? The fountain of youth, somewhere there. You know, if someone finds that, they're going to be a billionaire, that's for sure. But it's only going in one direction. So the, I like this from Larry Rosenberg's book. This is talking to what I've just been speaking about. I am a person who takes very good care of himself. I do yoga most mornings. I take long, vigorous walks. I meditate a great deal. And I am careful about the food supplements and the food that I eat. Right? Check all those ones off, right? About three years ago, when I was 63, I was on the subway in Boston coming back from a trip to the dentist. I comfort myself with the thought that I may have looked a little peaked from my dental work. I was standing there holding on to the metal rail when a young woman seated in front of me smiled and stood up and gave me her seat. I didn't realize at first quite what was happening. I thought she was getting off at the next stop. But that stop went by and the next, and I started to realize, wait a minute, a young woman just gave me her seat on the subway. My mind started racing. I wanted to say to her, you've got it all wrong. I get up and give my seat to you. I've been giving up subway seats all my life. But apparently, from her standpoint, this looked appropriate. She was a young, vigorous, healthy woman, and I, it seemed, looked like a man who needed to sit down. All of my years of doing yoga, eating good food, and taking long walks were wasted. I looked my age anyway. Next time it would be, hey, Grandpa, how'd you like a seat? Or slow down, old timer, let me help you with those packages. My self-image as a youthful, bouncy, older man, an image I didn't even know I had, had been smashed to pieces. This was not a bad experience. It was actually good. A young woman made a courteous gesture, and I got to take a load off my feet. It was what I did with it before my awareness returned and I had a good laugh at myself that mattered. It was a modern-day rite of passage, an in initiatory moment that let me know I was in a new category. It shattered my self-image. Welcome to the club. So it's a practice, right, to let it in. To let it in whatever stage we're at, whatever's happening in our body, however healthy or not healthy we might feel. This is the nature of the body. And so for me, I make it a practice if I see a dead animal, and you do see them around here. You know, you can have a response of pity or compassion, but this too, as the Buddha said, will be my fate. Hopefully not roadkill, necessarily, but... <laughs> You know, I see the little chipmunk out there and it's like a moment ago maybe it was alive and full of urgency gathering its storehouse of nuts to hibernate with and now it's lying there what? What is it? What happens? This mystery about what happens, what is it? And we so don't like to say the word dead or death or dying, all of these euphemisms. It's an ex-chipmunk, if you're a Monty Python <laughs> fan. 
my father is uh, 91 now, and he's, you know, my teacher in this area, because you get to 91, and pretty much everyone you know has died. He used to love to read the obituaries, and now he doesn't, because they've all died. There's no one that he knows anymore. He was the church organist, so he would play at funerals. So he went to more than his share of funerals, just people he knew and people he didn't know. And so I'd often call him up and they'd start the conversation. Remember the halls or the the butchers or the the ethics or whatever, you know, they used to live up the block around the corner. And I go, yeah, kind of. Well, so-and-so died or so-and-so is in hospital. That was... It was his life, and he had all these euphemisms. He'd say, oh, so-and-so has fallen off their perch, or so-and-so has passed their use-by date. But he doesn't do that anymore. He said, they've all died, so the conversation has to be about someone else. But you're right, these something else. There, there are all these euphemisms, because we don't like to talk about it. I, saw, I, looked, I looked them up. You can see there's like literally a hundred of them on the unable to breathe, now they're on the unable to breathe list, or immortally challenged, or assumed room temperature. All of these ways of not really saying what's happened. And there's so much neuroses and fear about this. Woody Allen, you know, is the archetypal, you know, all of his movies, right, are basically about the fear of death. And so these are his lines, you may know them. I don't want to achieve immortality through my work. I want to achieve immortality through not dying. (laughs) I like this one. I don't want to live on in the hearts of my countrymen. I want to live on in my apartment. (laughs) It's kind of good to laugh about it, but just so we can get closer to it, right? Be a little tender around it. Because this is the nature. It's not bad or wrong that this happens. And sure, there can be grief and loss around all of these. These are normal and natural human emotions. But we don't want to be, and it's not to be gloomy or morbid about it, but this is the truth of things. This is the way that things are going. And the more that we're willing to contemplate it, our own death, the death of those We love our pets, our partners, our family, people we know, don't know. This is what helps us stay in touch with this. So then we don't add what's called the second arrow. The woe is me, the why me, the shouldn't be happening. It's the nature of the body. It's imperfect. In its amazing, miraculous nature, I'm always amazed it goes on as well as it does, but it also has problems, right? It, it will deteriorate. It will have problems. Another dear friend, she's also now, uh, she died a, a, year, a few years ago, but she to- told us once we went to visit her, she was in her declining years. You know, she had a lot of stuff going on. And she said, I went to the doctor the other day, and, you know, they say, well, how are you? And she said, I started listing the things that were wrong, and by the time I got to the 10th or 15th thing, I just, you know, started laughing because it was everything. You know, every part of the body you could name, something was going on with it. And she, but she was a deep practitioner, and she could just hold that with tenderness and laugh about this aging body and really take care of it as best we can. And there's a, a peace, a freedom that comes 
when we're able to turn to this with full awareness, with full openness. It's what the Buddha found. You know, all of his teachings are so Mara cannot find you. Mara, the, 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 the deceiver, the doubter, um, is also called the Lord of Death. He said, how do you live so Mara cannot find you? Not by not dying, but by living fully and opening to the truth of death. And those of you that have had that experience of being with someone who's in that space, whether they're in the dying process or not, but especially if they are, of just really fully accepting, this is what's happening. There's a power there, a wisdom there, a potency there. I know John spoke the other night, uh, last night, about his work in hospice and what a great practice and teaching it is to be in that environment, to, to be with someone as they go through this process. The greatest mystery we will ever know and the most powerful teacher if we let it in. So all of these different practices that the Buddha listed, as I said, it's just an amazing map. And we just do the first few. Some of you may find these others interesting, want to bring them in, but even if you don't, keep coming back to what is it pointing to as a wise relationship to the body? How do we hold this body with great care and reverence, but see it as it is, conditioned, impermanent. It is our vehicle for awakening, so we want to care for it. You know, all the things that Larry Rosenberg did, and I'm sure most of you are doing, we do take care of it. But it doesn't prevent the inevitable from happening. So how do we open and be with that process too? And what the Buddha says is, if if you identify with the body, then you'll suffer along with the body. If you don't identify with the body, but treat it with respect, use it as your vehicle for awakening, then there's freedom. The body is a doorway for awakening. So we see it in its elemental nature, its conditioned nature, its constructed nature. It is, this is the nature of the body. And through this practice, we actually can become more alive, more awake, more free, more compassionate, more kind, more connected. I want to finish with a short teaching from the Dhammapada, which is a collection of kind of pithy verses about practice from the Buddha. And it says, simply talking a lot doesn't maintain the Dhamma. Whoever, although they've heard next to nothing, sees the Dhamma through their body is not heedless of the Dhamma. They are one who maintains the Dhamma. Sees the Dhamma through their body. All of the, this that fathom-long body is everything you need to awaken. As the Buddha says, in this fathom-long body is the world and the ending of the world. So we have reverence for the body, appreciation for the body, but we know the body as a body, as it is. So let's just take a moment to let the words settle.
Thank you for your attention. Again, about half an hour for chanting, perhaps out into the cool night air, and then we'll have the last sitting with chant. What did I say? (laughs) Half an hour for walking. Please don't go out and chant for half an hour. (laughs) Come back and chant in half an hour. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.